You're listening to a Corridor Business Journal podcast. It's time for straight talk about diversity, frank questions, honest answers, and real insights. It's Diversity Straight Up with your hosts, Sadaka Bodka of Nikea Diversity Consulting and Anthony Arrington of top-ranked professional and executive search firm. Diversity Straight Up is a Corridor Business Journal podcast brought to you by Collins Aerospace, the city of Cedar Rapids, and Alliant Energy. Today's episode is being recorded live during EntreFest in Cedar Rapids. EntreFest is a two-day conference celebrating the spirit of entrepreneurship and innovation where professionals at every level come together, share ideas, and own their success. Today's guests are Sona Razia Begum, Digital Strategy Lead for the John Deere Intelligent Solutions Group, Pernell Cesar Jr., Co-Founder and CEO of Black & Bold Specialty Coffee and Teas, and Jacob Shu, CEO of Catalyte. I didn't want to just be like, hey, here's a statement of support. Companies that are just saying that and not actually doing something about it, that's part of the problem. You have to start change sometime, and then yeah. progress is tomorrow. Leadership in our company spoke up. They said the name George Floyd. It gives us all permission to say that name, but now leaders do it. We look up to them, we emulate them, and it gives everyone permission to talk about it. We'll be right back. At Collins Aerospace, we believe that fostering an inclusive environment makes our employees feel valued. It also helps our business succeed. By encouraging diverse viewpoints in the workplace, we're redefining futures. It's why we proudly support the Corridor Business Journal's diversity podcast, Diversity Straight Up. Diversity Straight Up is sponsored by the City of Cedar Rapids. Cedar Rapids is a welcoming and vibrant city, encompassing unique attractions, exciting and diverse events, specialty shopping, a dynamic art scene, and a large variety of restaurant and nightlife options. You'll find that Cedar Rapids offers one of the best places to live, work, and play in the Midwest. Welcome to a special and exciting episode of the Corridor Business Journal's Diversity Straight Up podcast. We're coming to you live, but virtually, from EntreFest 2020. I'm one of your co-hosts, Sarika Bakta. I'm Anthony Arrington. This is going to be a very different show than, than we expected today, so we're going we're gonna to get right into it. Not going to waste a lot of time. Well, help us welcome our powerhouse slate of guests. We are going to get ready to get under the hood with Jacob Shu, CEO of Catalyte. We also have Pranel Cesar Jr., CEO and co-founder of Black and Bold Specialty Coffee and Teas. We also have, not last but not least, Sona Raziabigam, Strategy Lead with the Digital Solutions Group for John Deere. They have impressive bios, everyone. Check it out on the EntreFest website, as well as connect with them on Whova. Yeah, it's going to be good. So listen, we're about to get under the hood, so, so put your biases aside. Strap on your seatbelt. We're not going to waste any time. Uh, we're going to get right, right into this show today. So something is on my mind. Something's on my mind. Something has really been on my mind the last week, and we're going to talk right about it. Uh, I'd like to show the audience a, a picture. I'd like to show them a meme uh, that's something that's been sticking with me. So, um, and then I'd like to talk about it a little bit. I want everybody to take a look at this. Both knees are kneeling in America, only sees a problem with the one on the left. Some, it's a meme. But we, we know it's got a powerful statement. And, and uh, as an African-American male uh, who's watched this, this, this travesty over the last week, it's been disturbing to me. Um, and I believe that we all owe ourselves 
an opportunity in business and in our personal lives to work together to make change. And I, and I wanted everybody to see this and I wanted everybody to think about this because I know from a business perspective, it's, it's on everybody's mind. So, Sarah, what, what, what are you thinking about this? I feel pained. I feel hurt. I think of humanity when someone is asking, saying, I can't breathe, that humanity is not able to reach out. I think about colleagues that are the bystanders that should have been doing something. I think about the community bystanders that were trying to do something. We have such systemic inequities going on and there's no social justice. So I've experienced racism a lot being an immigrant in America, yeah. living in the Midwest, but my heart goes out to my black and African-American colleagues and clients and community members. I feel that some of us have been woke and we've stayed awake, but Sometimes when incidents and tragedies like this happen, people get woke. But the sad part is they just go back to sleep. Yeah, yeah. We need to stay yeah. woke and stay awoke. Yeah. And I say the power of the purse, the purchasing power, and the power to vote. Because you saw the Minneapolis school district did that. Yes, right? absolutely. You absolutely. also saw L.A. city of Los Angeles looking at their budgets. And they're going to reallocate it, not just from the police department, but across all their budgets yes. as well. So Good things are happening. Yeah. You can have the power of the person, the power of yeah. vote. Yeah. Let's talk to our guests. So, Pernell, I'll, I'll ask you first. You know, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for, for joining us today. Um, you know, as, as, a, as a fellow black business owner, um, you know, and one of the focuses of your company is to, to really give back to the underserved and to, to, to work with underserved individuals and support. So we're both entrepreneurs. And I, my question is to you is how, how do you communicate or how have you been communicating to your your employees, your suppliers, um, your family. How have you been handling this as an African-American business owner? Okay, so I would like to say I've been handling it like I do every day, unfortunately. Um, it's, it's one of, it's, I, I, there's so many phrases I've caught other people saying recently, but it's one of those things that we, we, yeah. we live with trauma. We damn near come to learn how to normalize trauma. And these are just reminders of that. And it's on a grander scale when it's, you know, um, televised and mm -hmm. replayed over and over and over. But, uh, you know, unfortunately, a lot of these things aren't televised. We all live with our own trauma. Um, fortunately, I started that with, we all live with our own trauma. Um, you know, so for me, it's, it's pretty interesting to be doing all of this also with COVID-19 going on. Yeah. My, my yeah. biggest thing um, with, you know, again, being born into an oppressed family and, and, and raised in the oppressed uh, city of Gary, Indiana, uh, that part is almost normalized for me, but navigating the business through COVID as an <laughs> entrepreneur, not so much. Right. So um, everyone's health has always been a priority for me, uh, family and employees. And now with, you know, uh, allowing our, my people to grieve, uh, my family to grieve, um, the community to grieve, uh, and then also run a business and, uh, Sarika, you mentioned uh, spending your dollars, right? And using right. power your dollars. We right. over the past four or five days have seen a, a massive influx of um, allies, supporters of, as well as the black community, uh, doubling down on supporting uh, black businesses that are uh, at huge risk of closing due to COVID nineteen. Yeah. And so that's a that's a that's a pot, that's a huge positive sign. It's great, mm -hmm. but the challenge in my current seat is. I'm also prioritizing health and people grieving while trying to fill orders. I want all the orders. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. Right. But right. Uh, that in itself is a challenge. And uh, for me, uh, 
addressing leadership. I'm, I'm in Des Moines, Iowa, addressing uh, other small business leaders that um, you know want to be an ally and want to say something. But um, you know, in the social world of social media, you never know what the the comeback is going to be from someone. And um, I, I you know monitor social media and encourage people to keep going. And that's been yeah. a big thing. If someone's brave enough to want to be an ally, say at least they want to yeah. change. You can't. You can't. Like, you have to start change sometime, and then yeah. progress is tomorrow. But you have to start it. And so, um, my whole thing is just encouraging those that want to say something and do something to, uh, no pun intended here, be bold and start yes. the conversation. <laughs> yeah, start the conversation. I don't. I don't need anyone's validation in myself. I need people to validate to their everyday environments, their everyday circles that Black Lives do matter. And yes. everybody, everyone needs to do better. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. Yes. Thank you, Parnell. Appreciate you uh, sharing your thoughts and feedback uh, during all of these challenging times. Um, Sona, hello. Welcome to the show. I want to ask you, we're both um, Asian American women. We're both immigrants. And um, when you saw this image, uh, what do you think about as a leader working for a global company and how do we as the Asian community globally show up to support our fellow mankind? And um, as Parnell said, that looking for other business as well too, right? So how do we show support? First and foremost, thanks for including me in this great panel. Um, it's very difficult times as we've all acknowledged. Um, Sarika, as you said, um, you know, I. I was born and raised in India. I came to US 20 years ago. Um, my growing experiences have been very different from my American days. So I start with just the understanding that I need to listen. I need to learn. I need to empathize. And above all, I need to be kind to folks who are hurting the most at this point. So I think that as a first step, before we even jump to action, I think we have to find, especially folks, I'm talking from my personal experience here, I'm just, I have to understand and learn what's happening. Get educated as highest priority. Just, you know, understand truly what is happening mm -hmm. around mm -hmm. us. How are people, you know, who are most affected are African-American brothers and sisters. How are they um, reacting to this? Listen to them as opposed to, just trying to jump to solutions. That's been my personal um, path so far. But I also, after we get through that step, I think saying staying silent would be the crime. I think we have to Agreed. be vocal. We have to be vocal. Agreed. And that, that Agreed. is so Agreed. And then I just want to say I'm, I'm part of a global company, John Deere. One thing that I've noticed in the past week is leadership in our company spoke up. They sent emails, they came up on all employee meetings. They said the name George Floyd. It gives us all permission to say that name. Yeah. That's our thoughts. It's so important. You, you, when our leaders do it, we look up to them, we emulate them, and it gives everyone permission to talk about it. And I think that is very critical as leaders. Um, yeah. So, yeah, there's so much here to unpack. But yeah. No. Great, uh, thank you for your, your thoughts. Um, you know, Jacob, Jacob, um, welcome to the show as well. We appreciate you coming. Uh, Jacob, your company, Catalyte, um, it's built around providing software um, to, to, to find software engineering talent and to demonstrate, and it has, that it can come from anywhere in the world. 
doesn't have to come from Yale. It can come from the Bronx, New York, from somebody working in a coffee shop. As an Asian American, um, you're, you're, you're a business leader. And so what are you saying to your associates and your friends and your family about this issue? And, and knowing that you are a reflection of your company's position on these, on these issues of diversity yourself. And, and it's the backbone of your organization. So what are, you, what are you saying to your associates and your family and friends? Yeah, thank you, Anthony. <clears throat> well, I'll tell you, the, I struggled um, to think about sort of how to respond. Um, obviously, you know, late last week already, I was thinking a lot about, we got to do something. We got to say something. Right. Um, but, you know, what I struggled with was actually, frankly, a little bit of an opposite problem. It wasn't do I offend other people who may not sort of agree with sort of my view of sort of, you know, systemic racism. It was more that I didn't want to kind of just create lip service. I didn't want to just be like, hey, here's a statement of support. Um, frankly, you know, companies that are just saying that and not actually doing something about it. Um, that's part of the problem. Right. I mean, I think about it as, in, you know, my, you know, Catalyte, my company is based on the premise, I mean, it's built on the foundation that talent, ability, and potential is evenly distributed, right? And we have science that packs us up, right? So everywhere we've actually launched centers, we can show you that over time, uh, because we don't look at pedigree, we don't look at resumes, we don't look at sort of surface level things around people, we actually think about finding people right. who think a certain way. We can show that over time, in every city that we go to, our workforce ends up mirroring the demographics of the cities that we're bringing talent from. Right. And I'm talking about race. I'm talking about gender. I'm talking about uh, 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 age. I'm talking about education profile. Um, you know, so I struggled quite a bit with how do we respond um, with more than just simply, hey, you know, we support, <laughs> you know, say these, these sort of, you know, statements of support. So on Monday, you know, after thinking about over the weekend, I mean, we came out, you know, pretty definitively, right? I sent a all hands email um, to everybody. We put, we posted all of our media around sort of our stance against condemning, obviously, the senseless and tragic and just, yeah, uh, this, the, 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 this tragedy. Yeah. But, um, but then we also, you know, when, you know, we, we've actually had a, you know, all hands meeting, right, for all of our, all of our plate, all of our employees. And it's, uh, and it's obviously optional, but we made it such that it was a safe space that people would just talk about their feelings, yeah. right? And I think a big part to Sona's point is that just listen. You know, this is not the time for a CEO or business leaders to be like, hey, you know, we're going we're gonna to fix this problem. You know, the reality, right, and this is my sort of very specific point of view, is that the whole system is actually sort of, I hate to say rigged, but it's, these are systematic issues, right? So when you talk about yeah. systemic racism, it's not, a, it, it's not simply a race issue. It's actually the system that it's built on, right? And there's a, mm -hmm. a system here that is self-reinforcing and actually creating a very small minority of elites. I always tell people, look, the labor market doesn't work, right? If you think about labor market, it works pretty good for people who have great pedigrees, who went to four-year universities, who have, you know, who, who have great resumes. It works even better for people who went to elite schools and, and worked at elite places. It doesn't work for the two-thirds of Americans who don't have a four-year degree. It doesn't mm -hmm. work for people who have been disadvantaged or coming, who have been disenfranchised, who've come from underinvested places. And that's what's fundamentally wrong. And frankly, um, I think so much of this has been wrapped up into politics. But, you know, I'm frankly disgusted by politicians on both sides because the whole po our whole political system has been built now recently on dividing us, right, about making mm -hmm. race this sort of very, this culture war. And the reality is that it's not, right? In fact, you know, I think of race is it's a very surface level view of diversity, right? What's really frankly happening is that 
we've essentially started building and automating now these echo chambers of organizations and of very similar people, right? Even if you go into elite companies, they've got racial diversity. They, at least they can show you yeah. some racial diversity, but you'll find very quickly, you know, for example, the black people that you find in, in most tech companies, well, they went to the same elite schools and the same private schools. They grew up in the same neighborhoods yeah. as people, right? So, you know, there's a fundamental issue that we're facing with diversity here that is really right. wrapped up in very surface level issues that really is a, a fundamental problem yeah. with our institution. There's a class issue. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, I agree. You know, we could um, think about everything that you, Pernell and Sona had said in terms of being able to step up and being use, using your voice and looking at diversity beyond just the surface level. We can continue to go on and on about um, all of these uh, topics, and we're going to continue as we move on to our next segment because we know that this is not in silo. So let's go on and you know see what is on our guest mind now. What's on our guest mind? I'm going to. Um, uh, ask you a little bit about your background. We know that leaders, uh, the impact that they have and how they lead is all based on, you know, their beginnings. So can you share a little bit about, you mentioned you were um, born in Gary, Indiana. There's a lot of perception out there from people in terms of what Gary, Indiana is. And the unknown is a fear factor because they don't understand. So can you share with our listeners your journey that began in Gary, Indiana and growing up there and being one of the first generation college students in your family to then go on to University of Northern Iowa. All right. Well, I am definitely going to have to hit the bullet points on that, though. <laughs> I spend quite a bit of time. It's back. Understand. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess I was born in Chicago, so I saw Chicago, and then, uh, you know, before I was one year old, one year old uh, my mother moved to Gary, Indiana, so uh I'm, again, high-level bullet points here. So um, my pops passed away when my mother was pregnant with me in a car accident. And my mother had nine of the siblings and then her her mother that all lived in Chicago area together. And from that, my mother just needed her own space. And so she decided to move to Gary, 30 minutes away, still enough distance, though. Um, and shortly after that, my grandmother um, moved over to Gary to help my mother raise myself and my older sister. So we, like I said, I spent my 18 years in, in Gary and um, I mean, my mother also uh, ended up having a disability, a genetic disease called uh, Huntington's, which uh, mm -hmm. impacts your, ner your nervous condition, nervous, uh, yeah. yeah, Huntington's, anywho. Um, and so my grandmother ended up raising all three of us basically, or taking care of all three of us. And so lived on government aid, free and reduced lunch, uh, you know, the, the challenges of Gary, Indiana, not really having much of a industry, uh, once the steel industry uh, kind of you know, globalized itself. And a lot of crime during the time in Gary and uh, it still hasn't yet to recover and find its own, you know, prosperity. And so uh, the, the outside looking in is a lot different from, you know, inside and being in because you're born into the resources that you have. And while, you know, I paint that picture for you all and you kind of visualize it yourself, I never felt like we were in poverty. poverty. And the, the crime and violence that existed was a byproduct of how and what your community looked like and, you know, the, the inner workings of that, right? Uh, there's, there's good and there's bad. 
there's survival and there's not. And there's things mm -hmm. that you should and shouldn't do in order to, to accomplish that. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I, I was fortunate with, you know, not having anyone uh, in my family with uh, going to college to have, you know, teachers and administrators that saw something in me and encouraged me to take the next step towards the path. And I was blindly following those requests until ultimately when I look back, on how I made it to college and the individuals that touched my life to help me get there. Uh, it was never an intentional thing. I, I came across the University of Northern Iowa three months before graduation. I hadn't taken the ACT uh, test or anything and uh, had the, the GPA and the ranking just was only focused on getting a job to take care of my family. And I uh, was fortunate to, uh, you know, go in the UNI academic uh, scholarship and, um, Geez, I, I got my first <laughs> I got my first job at UNI from making a phone call to request like what does an interview process look like? And they said, Oh, you just show up on this day and you can start orientation. And <laughs> you know, I went through most of high school with no job because I couldn't find one. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's easy to get a job. No, I'm going to college, right? <laughs> so Yeah. <laughs> Alliant Energy is a place where I can create the future, where my skills, creativity, and new ideas make a better tomorrow. I help deliver the energy powering moments that matter to you. It's where we care about the environment and our neighbors, a place where my talents and skills grow. My job isn't a job, it's my passion, my place, my purpose, because I am energy. See how you can put your energy to work at alliantenergy.com slash careers. Interesting. So that's interesting. I know one of the things you talked about was some of your internal, your internal struggles coming from a, a community uh, that was 80% uh, black and moving into a community that was 90% white. And, and some of those experiences have affected you as, as a business owner today and how you communicate. And uh, it, it was those experiences that... Uh, that affected your decision-making and some of your thought process as a business owner. I'm, I'm glad yeah. you drew that out. I'm glad you drew that out because uh, one of the things with transitioning from away from home, right, as an out-of-state student um, and wanting to go back to Gary and um, you know, also not wanting to compromise being focused on my academics, I just got really involved on campus. Um, and, you know, student organizations that I related to, fast forward, I was overly involved. And one of the things that, um, I was really passionate on was seeing our administration make us a, a sustainable change in their prioritization of diversity. My freshman year to my junior year, almost all of the uh, black administration uh, and, and staff uh, had left. And, you know, those individuals had become family. And so you know why they leave. It's not just they randomly disappear for career advancement. And so, you know, that was a, a, a systemic issue in itself. Each one of them is a systemic yeah. issue. So we really focused on that and at the same time focused on student government and uh, building a, a role for focused on diversity and uh, in lobbying for that position, there was equal uh, energy around not seeing it happen. And I remember um, going to, you know, some committee meeting that had moved around like four or five times. And I'm the only person there to, to pitch this, this position. And, one of the you know senators uh, stands up and says, you know, this is not important to us on campus. Like, we should not be wasting resources on focusing on diversity when it's not a priority. We're not diverse. Why are we focusing on this? 
And that's the energy that made me decide to run for student body president um, and ultimately uh, was fortunate to be elected by the campus. Uh, I was the first black student body president out of uh, 91 that preceded me. And my vice president uh, was also black from Gary, Indiana. And so it's not, it's not that diversity didn't matter. It was despite those challenges, it's more than that. Um, we talked about, awesome. talk about surface level. It's very much surface level when you spend the time to open your mind and get to know individuals. But at the same time, I don't want that to limit anyone to just yeah. the people that they know in their circle. You also have to care about their families and their kids' future. I hear way too many times that, yeah, I hear way too many times that, you know, oh, but that person's not like, and that's systemic, and that's underlying, and that's the things that we got to pay attention to when we do that, because that feeds this issue of oppression. And so I hope yeah. that this moment in life and people take the time to pause catch themselves, catch their peers that they're comfortable with checking, but also not be silent in places where they may need to be a little braver to say, hey guys, probably need to think about what you're saying great. and why you're saying that. Great, great yeah. business advice. Great you know, business. I think about a lot of things you said, Pranel, but especially when thinking about, you know, the surface level and a lot of times when you're thinking about diversity being intentional, um, sometimes you're not. Um, the question I have here for Sona here is uh, when we were talking offline, we actually talked to listeners, we actually talked to all of our guests a little bit offline. So some of this information is based on that conversation. So we'll just wanna provide a little context. But um, we talk about um, people having homogenous look, if you're looking at it from a racial perspective, but you also have sometimes homogenous thinking that can happen in industries. So from an industry knowledge perspective, it can be very homogenous. And if you keep on hiring people from the same industry, are you going to be able to drive innovation? Do we always say diversity drives innovation? So companies who have success in leveraging diversity have taken risks on individuals who may not have that industry-specific experience or knowledge, but have many other qualities that they have that can make them a, you know, a good fit for an organization. So you mentioned you came into the ag industry without any ag experience, and John Deere located in Quad Cities, that was my old stomping ground. Can you share with us how you were able to find success and build trust with your colleagues and coworkers and clients, um, given that you didn't have this ag experience? Absolutely, Sarika. So um, I, so maybe just a little bit about my background to set the context for my, my not- um, so I, I, I grew up in a, a state in, Kerala, in India called Kerala. So it's a, it's a tropical state, you know, coconut trees, beaches, and it's a vacation destination. And uh, essentially, it's got 30 million people uh, in, in, a, in a space that's uh, ha a quarter the size of Iowa. So very densely populated, not a lot of farming sure uh, every inch has been taken up for uh, people and you know just urbanized pretty much um, so when I came to the so I did my undergrad in engineering and then I moved to the US uh, I initially started on a uh, as a developer because that was where most of the opportunities lay and then as I was um, and I was at uh, Daimler Chrysler so once I was there I got engaged with a lot of the business folks and that triggered my interest in the business side uh, and uh, I went forth and took an MBA to get a little more grounded in that. So I was in Northwestern at Kellogg Business School. And Deere has this program where, as Sarika mentioned, they're trying to bring diverse perspectives. So they go to these business schools and uh, recruit. So when I was sitting at uh, my interview there, 
recruiting for John Deere, uh, the interviewer said, yeah, you know, this is a position. Uh, it's a general management position. It's a leadership rotation program. And that triggered my interest again, because I'm trying to learn. And they said it's in this place called Quad Cities. So I made a mental note, Google Quad Cities, because I had no idea <laughs> what this was. I was in Chicago, I was in Michigan before that. I said, okay, this is going to be interesting. So first thing I did was I did take an internship and try to understand, like, rather than just do a leap of faith, because I was worried for the same reason. So I can mention it's, I didn't have the background, new place, new people, new industry. So I did an internship. I really fell in love with the people that I worked at in Silvis, uh, part of the Quad Cities area. And then I decided, hey, this is actually interesting. I'm going to come back. And so when I came full time, one of the things that um, was, you know, I was very aware that I am coming mm -hmm. into a space that, you know, people are not going to just accept me. Because again, I don't have that credibility in the ag space. So I took <coughs> to understand what is it that I'm bringing to the table. And in my mind, that was my technology understanding uh, my background, my diverse perspectives, but I also mm -hmm. realized that I had a lot of gaps in the in the space that my coworkers were experts at. So it again needed me to be humble, to listen, really listen, ask a lot of questions, and, and let them know the curiosity is coming from a space of wanting to learn about that industry. But I'm not wasting their time because I do bring something to the table, and that is my tech expertise. That is my uh, different perspectives. And so engaging and going the extra, you know, um, step to build trust. Because uh, coming in, I knew I was not going to have it. So I knew what, I, what my strength was, where my weakness was, being aware, and just going the full force of like, hey, I'm here to learn. And I listened, I asked a lot of questions about farming, about uh, practices. And then when the time was appropriate, I would talk about, hey, if that's the problem, can we try this, you know, technology? And they were more inclined to listen to me because I've already invested the time to build a relationship. So that is the path that I chose. Great. So, so, so is the lesson there to the, the lesson? What I'm hearing is that it's it's building the relationship, having that curiosity, and being willing to to step outside of your comfort zone to be curious. And um, you've carried that as a leader. As and utilizing the strength-based approach. Yes. Hers was in tech, and she was able to demonstrate it, and then she was able to align tech with ag. So I right. think those are some great, great uh, key points, and I think industries need to do, continue to do a better job of diversifying their industry knowledge. As We all have all engineers in one room. Yeah. I've experienced it, trust me, with my circle of family and friends. <laughs> you have such, you know... <laughs> Yeah. very homogenous yeah. group thing going on. You need to break that. Otherwise, you're going to stifle innovation from happening because yeah. that is where innovation comes in and invention and creation is just that diversity. Yeah. It's going to take a longer time, though, for sure, but it'll be well worth it at the yeah. end. Yeah, it's interesting. It's a, it's a nice segue because I want, Jacob, I want to talk to you about, about Catalyst and about as we think about, um, as, as Sadek has said, and as we've experienced with Sona, innovation and technology uh, are driving diversity, right? You're on a whole nother level at, at Catalyte with what you're doing. As I understand, you're one of the things that you, we know studies are showing that bias finds its way into products due to artificial intelligence, right? The old AI word. And this type of bias infects every sector. So not only is there bias in human beings, but there's bias in the technology. Your company uh, obviously is showing that you can take data and demonstrate that you can find an engineer 
that can develop, can become a software developer that used to work in a coffee shop in the Bronx. He never went here. She never went to Yale and got that experience. You've also, we talked a little bit offline about taking that bias, not only out of the human, but out of the technology itself. Can you talk about that and, and where Catalyst play, Catalyte plays in that space and, and, and your thoughts around that? Yeah. So I think, you know, thank you for that, for, for that sort of intro. I mean, so what our technology ultimately does is that we start from outcome data, right? So we don't look at sort of inputs. We're actually looking at outputs, right? So we first start with, uh, and, it, and it begins really with 20 years of engineering outcome data. And from there, we can identify what a very, you know, we're trying to answer a very simple question, which is what does excellence mean? Right. And when you look at sort of engineering, you know, why did we start with software engineers, by the way? So it's that, that you know, the, the founder of the company mm -hmm. is not a technical person. He was an economist. And you start with software engineers because actually you can measure uh, output of outcomes of engineering a lot easier than other careers. Like it's much easier, you know, today, if you ask me what makes for a great engineer, well, I can point to 30 plus different, you know, metrics that we might look at on an engineering in terms of managing performance, but ultimately we can extract from there a very simple question, which is, you know, if you are, if a company is looking for, you know, quality, their tapes, their, a certain type of behaviors drives quality, right? Certain types of team assembly will drive quality. If you're looking for velocity, right? Certain types of behavior, certain types of people can do that. Um, and so what we do is that we start first with defining excellence in a clear, objective, uh, measurable way, right? And again, no personal information at all. From there, then we can actually extract from there, you know, what are the behaviors of people who are exemplary, right? Who are the highest performers. And, and at a very simple level, and, and this probably is very intuitive because, you know, today, if you ask most people in engineering, what makes for a great engineer, they usually tell you the same things, right? Oh, a person's learning, ability to learn things, people's ability to kind of, you know, have curiosity, evidence-based decision-making, et cetera, et cetera, right? Insert your adverb or adjective, whatever you'd like. Um, and so what we've shown is that, you know, we can actually model and find behaviors, right, that drive long-term performance and success. And then what we do is we work backwards. We actually build prediction models in terms of our screening tool to be able to help us find people who exhibit attributes that will predict those behaviors. And the crazy idea here, and which we're proving now through science every day, is that as long as people think a certain way, exhibit those attributes, you can actually train them for all those skills. Um, and they can very rapidly become some of the highest performing and most successful engineers. Now, sort of when you get down to the diversity level, which is something that, you know, frankly, we've been agitating quite a lot about now for the next last few years, is that we've actually fundamentally proven with science now that, uh, you know, many of the diversity problems that we face in the tech industry is really, it's created by humans. It's actually created by the systems that we've actually put mm -hmm. in place. And I'll start very first with resumes. And, uh, you know, resumes are biased, right? Like it or not, I mean, they, you can write them any which way you like. And we've all read the stories of Amazon sort of running into the problems they did when they try to automate some of these keywords. Well, the problem is that, you know, the actual sort of things that you're actually trying to automate are fundamentally based on subjective human biases. <laughs> so, uh, so the key really is like, how do you actually kill all of those fundamental tools? So our system begins first with like, we don't want to know anything about a person prior to them taking our online assessment, our online screening. So when a person comes to come to Catalyte, they register our website, they're sent a separate link to take this online screening. It's a two hour, what looks like an aptitude test. The secret of it is it's not a test. 
Um, it's actually what we're actually doing is we're watching how you interact with that test. In fact, your interaction with that test tells us a whole lot more about how you think than whether or not you know the answer to a random question that we put up there. Um, and so, uh, and what we can show is that over time, and we now have almost 20 years of sort of outcome data and alumni out there, is, is the statement I made earlier, is that over time, you know, generally speaking, aptitude and ability and potential is evenly distributed, right? So if you look at our workforce today, everywhere we go, in every city we go to, our workforce ends up looking very similar to the city. So I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm a product of Silicon Valley. I'm one of those, I was an immigrant, but I grew up in what is now Silicon Valley. Um, you know, when you look at sort of, and I made the point earlier about diversity, right? A lot of people in the Bay Area like to think that they live in a post-racial world. Well, the reality is they don't, right? <laughs> because, you know, when you think about diversity, right, it's very surface level, right? Um, you know, when you, what really hit me in the face, and I moved to Baltimore four years ago to do Cadillac, to run this business. And, you know, you couldn't find two cities that are more different, right, between San Francisco and Baltimore. Um, but, you know, I walk out the door and I realized very quickly what the problem was, which is that people in the Bay Area never interact with people who are at poverty or coming from different socioeconomic classes, right? Mm -hmm. And that's one of the fundamental problems that we face today is that racism absolutely is real, right? It's, it's been systemic, it's been institutionalized, but there's also a fundamental issue with racism, which is that it's actually, and we're seeing it now with COVID, right? COVID is only amplifying how fragile and brittle the system is, which is that, you know, who's been most impacted by COVID? It's the bottom 50% of our workforce, right? Mm -hmm. It's the people who actually did not have, who didn't have those fancy pedigrees, right? Yeah. Um, and, and, and I think ultimately, when you think about diversity, this is going to be something that I hope employers all step up, right? To provide more than lip service. They've got to make diversity and not just race, race diversity, but like diversity across all that spectrum. And for me in my Absolutely. world, particularly socioeconomic diversity, a stated outcome, like an outcome that's just as important as profitability. Because, you know, the world Absolutely. is complex. Yeah. You, can't, you can't optimize for one metric. You've got to optimize for a balanced set of outcomes. Yeah. Well, yeah. Jacob, you know, you hit upon quite a bit in terms of the value of looking at your systems, your processes, and programs, because those inequities, that's where the biases come in, is going to impact the equal outcomes that everybody is trying to achieve. So I appreciate you sharing a little bit more about how we can get to the, um, the inequities and in the systems here. Uh, for all of our, you attendees out there, um, please, please submit questions to us so that we can ask our guest executives. So please uh, submit them on Whova. We'd love to hear from you. Any comments, any questions? I know you have a lot on your mind. Please share with us so we can, you know, share it with the rest of the world here as well. Pernell, I have a question for you here in terms of um, one of the diversity is a generational diversity. In 2025, we're going to see 75% of our workforce are going to consist of millennials. And um, this is something that they value tremendously is a corporate social responsibility. What is my company doing? What is my organization doing? And it's not just your workforce that are thinking that. It's also the marketplace. Um, they want to go and buy from someone who has a corporate social responsibility. So... As an entrepreneur, how can you proactively focus on corporate social responsibility versus waiting until you scale up because you may not be financially stable in your earlier stages of a startup as a small business, as a small entrepreneur? How can you continue to give back even at the first go out of the gate? Sure thing. Use your platform to raise awareness, in particular to <clears throat> what your audience or your uh, consumer base um, believes in or supports. 
right, the underlying um, um, purpose or, or focus that they would have and or yourself. Uh, I would recommend yourself um, and putting that on the forefront of how do you use your platform to raise awareness. Um, you know, for Black and Bold, we give five, we're especially coffee roastery, wholesalers of coffee and loose leaf tea to retailers online, essentially making it convenient for consumers to have highest quality uh, coffee and tea at a competitive everyday price. And our focus is domestic social impact and giving 5% of our profits back to initiatives across the U.S. that are within the uh, communities of our consumer. And so for us, being a, a, a packaged goods brand, um, I wanted, this has been a business model that we've incubated, me being my partner and I have incubated for, for years. We just didn't have a widget to assign to it that could allow for all consumers or a broader base of consumers to share in that impact focus. Relevant social impact uh, in proximity to your community is something that a lot of people, anyone, but a lot of people can and do get behind. We've seen corporate social responsibility um, and, and global responsibility via supply chain, but some of that is out of context and out of reach to a consumer that's just buying a widget. And so it feels and sounds and sometimes is just marketing, not so much about being deeply rooted into, hey, if you're you know, a conscious consumer or you want to vote every day and be very intentional, here are options that actually do that in consistent spaces that you can relate to. It's really hard to find products or brands that tie it together that closely to a consumer. And so us being in existence um, allows for that. Uh, our core go-to-market strategy is brick and mortar. So we launched uh, nationally in select stores across Target at the beginning of this year. Our message is not only building awareness of our brand being as accessible as we are, but also helping conscious consumers or those that want to uh, vote with their dollars intentionally, help them understand that not only does that exist in this coffee commodity area, uh, but it does in a relevant space uh, that you can you can drive past, right? or you can also volunteer at. And so that's trying to get ahead of what should be more normalized today, which is social responsibility that looks like whatever yeah. the consistent thing is from a, a, a constituency of a business um, right. that's us trying to tie it together for for the, again that 2025 um, population and those that will come after them. Well, thank you so much for being able to share with the attendees and our listeners that um, you can be, you know, make a social impact as entrepreneurs and uh, congratulations on two years for your business, by the way. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Sona, I, Sona, I, I want to, we talked offline about internal struggle a little bit. And, and I remember one of the things that you talked about when you uh, first came to, to the, to the States and um, not only were you trying to prove yourself as a professional, but you were, you, you were concerned about your, yourself as a human, that internal struggle. What are people going to say about my name? What are people going to say about my brown skin? And you, you talked about that. Um, I imagine there are business owners and entrepreneurs who have those types of struggles as well. So can you, can you give our listeners a feel of how you overcame those struggles, those internal confidence struggles? Well, yeah, everybody's path is different. So I personally, I, you know, as I mentioned in my previous comment is, just being self-aware is very important. Like it's, it's, we know for individually what our worth is, uh, but uh, assuming that 
when you have an interaction with another person, um, they are looking at you at a surface level. And then when you have additional uh, conversations, when you listen and understand where that person's coming from, you have a better mm -hmm. chance of building empathy, building relationship and trust. And um, so I, I uh, on a personal level, I, I am very much uh, a positive person. I always assume good intent. And then, uh, and I build off of that and try to change perceptions through, uh, through actually putting in the hard work. Um, right. Most of the time, it's, it's, not, it's not a challenge. I, I personally, this, this is again my path. I'm not speaking for anybody else's <laughs> journey. Sure. But um, I, I feel like if you, if you show vulnerability and if you show your intent to understand and listen, you're always going to find somebody, you know, you're mostly going to find people who are going to work with you. And so I, I do not like to, to worry too much or dwell on the negatives. I try to push forward <laughs> and that's, you know, yeah. you know, that's helped me. But I also, Great. when I work with other folks around me, uh, I also assume good intent. So I would always start with kindness first and everybody's, you know, path, especially in COVID times, I feel like even more like we're all in the same storm, but we're in different boats. So mm -hmm. what one person's experiencing when they come into any, an interaction with you, you can't assume their, their life is good. They might have a two-year-old screaming <laughs> their head off. They might have an older mother or parents that they're taking care of. They might have immune challenge, you know, partner. Yeah. So there's so many things that are going in each person's life. It's very easy to assume like, oh, they just hate me because I look this way or my name's unpronounceable, which it is. Right. But, <laughs> but you know, yeah, I just, I just always start with good intent. It's a, it's a, it's a great, the, the lesson here is, is, is the confidence. And the, I like what you said about vulnerability. Um, I think that's, um, that's something that we all could be better at is being uh, that, that vulnerability and, and the willingness to, to communicate. So good lesson. Well, I have a question for Jacob. Uh, we talk about um, some of the key drivers of diversity and globalization is one of them. And we are seeing that apparent now more than ever, especially with the pandemic that we can be in Iowa and some people may think we're not global, but because of the pandemic, it has shown that we are very inner globally connected. So, Based on that, you know, our workforce, our marketplace, our supply chain, everything is part of that global fabric. But with also nationalism on the rise, can you give our listeners um, some thoughts, some um, as well as our attendees, some thoughts on how you are building those cross-border teams, whether it's in U.S., China, Japan, Europe, and other countries, especially as you experience uh, scaling up in your business model? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, you know, Catalyte, and actually, let me just take a step back. So Catalyte, we're actually very focused on building pools of talent locally, right? So our whole model actually is almost, uh, I almost call it the antithesis of offshoring. But actually, I can answer that question in a little different way because, you know, last, my last company before coming to Catalyte four years ago was a very large offshoring company. My last business was an R&D services company. I had 23,000 engineers in, you know, India, China, Philippines, and Scandinavia. So, uh, you know, the thing that you, you know, and, and that whole business was predicated on a, a very simple fact, which actually, funny enough, um, I can get into sort of how it personally changed me. But what I learned from that whole business as I grew it was smart people are everywhere. Right? And again, it's sort of reinforcing my point around talent and ability is evenly distributed. So I used to hire, you know, people, you know, 
smart kids out of school in like, you know, who came out of one light bulb villages in India, in China, right? I had one guy who literally had to swim across a river every day to go to school, right? And you just saw, again, sort of the underlying what drives success, right, is grit and determination and your ability to learn and your, really your commitment to making a change in your life. Um, and so, you know, what I got out of that, when I actually ended up sort of, um, um, you know, exiting that company, uh, it had a great sort of uh, exit. Um, I decided, well, I'm going to take everything I learned building R&D centers all over the world, and I'm going to build it right here in the United States, right? And we're going to build it everywhere that there is talent. Because again, you know, if you believe, and again, I have science, right, that backs it up, that talent, ability, and potential is evenly distributed, even if opportunity hasn't been. Well, we got to be doing a whole lot more as employers to make a change, right? To actually make that happen, right? We can't just outsource it to markets. We can't outsource it to universities and hope that it, it works, right? You got to take a much bigger hand in actually making it happen. And so, you know, we ended up putting the company's headquarters in Baltimore, Maryland, because precisely because Baltimore, Maryland is one of the, frankly, worst cities when it comes to social economic mobility. Right? When you think about Baltimore, everyone always says it's The Wire, yeah. right? Or it's Freddie Gray or all these other issues, right? But you know what we've actually proven? There's an exceptional base of talent, right? There are exceptionally smart people here who look nothing like the people in tech in Silicon Valley that are every good, uh, that are every bit as strong and have the same potential to do amazing things. And so we've proven it, right, through science that that's possible. And so today, I mean, you know, I think ultimately, you know, there, I, I think realistically, um, what we're going to see coming out of COVID is that um, there's going to be a repatriation of work coming back from overseas. And, and it's not driven by jingoism or anything like mm -hmm. that. I'm, not, I'm certainly not suggesting that. But the reality is that, you know, the work that was very easily packaged up and sort of distributed and could be sent overseas to, to be delivered out of gleaming state-of-the-art development centers and clean rooms does not translate very well to work remote work from home, right? So there's going to be this need to repatriate yeah. a lot of those work streams back locally. Um, and, you know, the future, if you think about the future of all companies, right, if you think about digital transformation, it's all about being able to sense and respond and react faster, right? So you're going to need to build mm -hmm. a workforce that's a lot more collaborative, a lot more iterative, who can be partners and sort of figuring it out together in terms of uh, where mm -hmm. the future is going to go. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing about, you know, looking at cross-border teams and this day and age with the globalization and with technology, a workforce that can be anywhere. But I think uh, you really hit it on the nail that it comes down to your workplace culture and how can you collaborate? How can you communicate? Well, uh, as you can see that uh, we have a dynamic guest and we have great conversations and we can continue on, but we're going to move along to another segment. This is probably one of my favorite segment, if I, only I can learn how to catch when Anthony throws, but uh, we're gonna uh, go ahead and do our segment, which is called a diversity thumbball here. And um, a diversity thumbball, I think Anthony can kind of show it right now, actually, because it was visual Ooh, here. It's a very soft ball. I never have him throw a hard ball at me. <laughs> <laughs> so the whole purpose of this is that um, it's a great icebreaker too as well. This is, the diversity thumb ball has a lot of questions around the ball and you throw it at somebody and they catch it and wherever the thumb or thumbs, wherever if you're close catcher lands, you have to read the question and then you have to answer the question. And we all know that it's critical to create safe spaces and on diversity straight up, you're always gonna have a safe space. Always. So <laughs> we just want you to be real and be authentic. So since we cannot throw it uh, through our screens here, um, <laughs> we're gonna just continue to throw it back and forth and we're gonna call out uh, someone to um, answer the question. So, right? All right, you ready? Can yeah, you catch be that nice. <laughs> all right. 
Well, this is going to be uh, for Sona. Sona, your question is, why do you seek out people similar to you as friends? So why do you seek out people similar to you as friends? Okay, I'm thinking. <laughs> I'm, not sure, I'm not sure I do that a lot, actually. It's really hard. There's not a lot of people similar to me where I am uh, to seek out as friends. So I actually don't. Is that an okay answer to tell you? Something? It surely <laughs> is. Not. It's your answer, yes. It, it surely <laughs> is. That's your answer. Okay, this is honest truth. I do not actually seek out. And one of the things, I'm a naturally curious person, so uh, I... I like to seek out people who are truly different from me so I can pepper them with all kinds of questions and really annoy them, I think. Just ask them a lot about where they come from, why they, you know, what do they do? So I am more interested in people who are different from me than I am who are similar to me. So my friend's gotcha. group is actually pretty diverse. <laughs> Fair enough, gotcha. Growing Fair up enough. in the Quad Cities, I said my friend circle was like the Benetton commercial, right? Oh, if that's Lord. where your cultural competency expands, uh -huh. where you're able to expose yourself to differences. Yeah. All right, I'm you gonna said throw, Benetton. I'm probably gonna that's throw it at you and it's gonna go hit Joe's head. All right. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna send this question to Jacob. Uh, Jacob, what would be the hardest part about being gay? Hmm. Well, I think it's the hardest part of being a minority in any situation is you got to get comfortable being uncomfortable, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and I think that's frankly a muscle, right, that everybody should build is, you know, if you can be uncomfortable and be comfortable doing being uncomfortable everywhere you go, well, you'll fit in everywhere, right, and, and that's been my mantra of life is, you know, I, I don't mind being the odd man out. I don't mind being the person right. who's not like everybody else. Um, I enjoy it. Awesome. All right. Last question. You ready, Sarah? Get my basketball on there. Okay, so Pernell, this question is for you. What's your generation's biggest challenge when it comes to acceptance? What's your generation's biggest challenge when it comes to acceptance? We don't make these questions up. They're just on the ball. They're on the ball here. <laughs> People being, well, it's kind of twofold. So I'll say um, people taking the time to uh, prioritize listening to others that are different and standing up for other people's rights beyond just their everyday, um, what they're used to. I could go on longer, but I'm trying. <laughs> no, I appreciate it. You know, uh, thank you so much. This has been a great, uh, show for us to be part of Onterfest. We appreciate all of our guests here today. And I think we're about ready to wrap it up here. So want to thank, uh, Jacob, Purnell, Sona, and Entrefest, and all of you attendees for being part of today's show. And a special shout out to our sponsors, Collins Aerospace, City of Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and Alliant Energy. Yep, I uh, love their episode of Diversity Straight Up. Um, you know, please, please head over, check this out. We're going to be rebroadcasting it at your, your most popular uh, sites. Um, we would have loved to have done this live. Um, but this is as live as it gets, and this has been a great, great time, and we really, really appreciate uh, Sona and Jake and, and Purnell for providing some knowledge. And we'd love to hear from you, so please do send us your comments and questions and suggestions to info at Diversity Straight Up, and a special shout-out to Quarter Business Journal. This was a wild idea that I had way back in the day, <laughs> way back in the day last <laughs> year. Reached out to John Lohman and said, I have this crazy idea. 
And he said, Sarika, let me see if I can get some sponsors. I love it. And guess what? It's only been season one, but I feel like we've been on a long, long journey. Timing of this could not have been any better with everything better. that we are going on in our world here. Right. So remember, wherever you live, work, and play, our backyards are extremely, increasingly global. And so it's not enough to just simply be a leader, be a global leader, and leverage diversity as an asset with equitable solutions, inclusive behaviors, and um, engaging solutions, and continue to empower each other to be bold agents. Absolutely. Uh, at the end of the day, diversity straight up. Keep, Keep it, it real. real. Keep it real. Keep it real.